Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden held their first bilateral meeting yesterday. What did they cover? Well, we'll talk about that. And with the threat of a third wave of the pandemic, should spring break be canceled? Leger folks did a poll on that. We'll give you those results. COVID-19 was a wake-up call in the pandemic preparedness. What went wrong and how can we fix it for the future? That's all coming up as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The big meeting yesterday between uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, and others, by the way, uh, since it was done virtually. The Vice President was there, Christian Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, and other ministers and uh, secretaries in the, the Biden cabinet took part in the meeting. And uh, there were a lot of nice things said about each other, as we kind of anticipated. Uh, both Biden and Trudeau know each other, of course, from the past. Uh, and uh, the president says the two countries are going to work together to tackle major issues like the pandemic and climate change. We also agreed to work in close cooperation to strengthen the supply chain, security and resilience, and to ensure that Canada and the United States are driving a robust economic recovery that benefits everyone. Joining us to talk about uh, the implications and uh, the long-term benefits, we hope, of this is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is director in the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Doctor, thank you for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. What's your overall view of what's happened yesterday when, as, uh, as you dissected exactly what got on? We got a pretty good snippet as to how the discussion went. What, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, like I, I think none of us is surprised to see a kind of very positive feel come from the whole, whole thing. And I, I watched their sort of joint Zoom press conference afterward, where obviously the rapport between the two is so positive and, and between the, the other the officials around them as well. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of what both President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau said was around core values. And some, I thought a really interesting point that President Biden made was something he referred to as core strength. And that was about the institutions of the United States and bringing us back to the core values, the democratic values that underpin those things. And so without making the whole thing about Trump, right, and I think uh, the prime minister actually made more references to, to Trump mm-hmm. than Biden did, um, you know, really kind of reiterating, listen, the U- United States takes its, its responsibilities as a global actor very seriously. And if we're and a lot of it was about multilateralism. So, I mean, if the U.S. is going to be seen as a serious exporter of democratic values, around the world they have to make sure that they're doing you know they're walking to talk at home i, I made that same note too about uh, about the the references or non-references i guess to trump which by the way from biden's standpoint is pretty much in keeping with the way he's been uh, really ever since election day he just when he's asked he just says that's the other guy and, and doesn't want to mm-hmm. get into any of that stuff uh but i thought you know the prime minister had to get at least one shot in that you know thank heavens we're, we, i've sure. got a partner in climate change again uh, yeah. So we, we get that. Okay, you check that box and we move on. The other thing I've heard, though, Doctor, as I'm looking over some of the analysis from here, is, is as you say, they touched on all the right bases, and we'll talk about the two Michaels in a second. Uh, but some of the concern here is about what wasn't talked about, uh, pipelines, uh, a number of different things like that, the Buy American policy. Uh, it didn't come up in the conversation. It certainly didn't come up in the Zoom conference after. I mean, and I wondered about that as well. You know, when they have had a, an initial talk, conversation, like after uh, President Biden became president, they had sort of an initial call. Obviously, the two men knew each other already. And I wondered whether yesterday was going to be something that leads to any decision points. Are we going to be taking anything away from that? Or is it going to be more, you know, what seems to have happened, which is a roadmap and a, a list of priorities, a list a kind of how some people have called it as a to-do list. 
and that the two countries agree on things that they want to make progress on. And so the specifics around, like, you know, we know the Keystone pipeline is, is not going to be a thing, but what about other pipelines? And how are we, like, if, if they've made this decision around um, net zero by 2050, well, how are we going to get there? And what are, how is that going to play out on a day-to-day basis and on an issue-by-issue issue basis? I think that stuff we're, we're less clear on at this point. And there lies the problem, and I, I agree with you. I think Keystone's pretty much come and gone. I mean, he's made his decision about that. And uh, the other one, of course, is, is the one that goes under Lake Huron that ends up in Sarnia, and there's, there's concern about whether or not that one's going to be shut down as well. And th- those are discussions that really don't take place at the the top level, though. I mean, that's not a discussion the prime minister and the, and the president would have, isn't it? That's that's done by the underlings, and then when they develop a policy, then these two guys talk about it. Well, that's the other thing, too, right, is that we obviously have seen a major change in the communications of the White House, um, the predictability of the White House, how Mr. President Biden conducts himself couldn't be more different than than the president before him. However, a lot of these decisions and the day to day, how it all plays out and even, you know, like extremely important decisions are made at different levels. Like the United States and Canada have such a deep relationship that, you know, it was explained to me when a few years ago when, when Trump was elected that, you know, that's just literally the tip of the iceberg. There's loads and loads of, of administration and, and connections and relationships and trust that exist below the surface of that high office at various other levels of government and, you know, states even at, at that level, right? So, like, a lot of this stuff is not, we're not going to see it come out in a bilat between the president and the prime minister. We're going to see it in, in different ways. And, and and that I, I guess it comes down to personality to a certain extent. I mean, in hindsight, I mean, Donald Trump was pretty much a one-man show. Everything went over his desk, or sometimes it just started from his desk. And as we've found from some of the books that have been written by the, the Bob Woodwards and others, a, a lot of that stuff that he would ramble on about, his staff would just ignore. Others, they tried to implement. Uh, but Biden seems to be a, much more of a team player. In other words, when he appoints somebody as Secretary of State, he lets them do their job. Yeah, yeah, and that was... I mean, that's huge and it makes such a difference. And we can see already how he, he has, has, takes such ownership, you know, of who he appoints and who he has around, around him. But there's so much trust there. Whereas with Trump, yeah, there was so much turnover around him. You didn't know whether he, you know, he was even talking to the people who were around him who seemed to be in a decision-making role. Then all of a sudden somebody's gone. Like it's, it's so difficult for other countries to be able to interact and i can't imagine what it's like to live domestically in that situation but like now i think that's what a big part of what biden's trying to do is saying you can trust us and we are taking a different approach to governance not surprising at all doctor to see that climate change was was a priority right Mm -hmm. near the top of the list if not at the top of the list uh and and i got the sense from from the president's comments that this is kind of like hey we're getting back in the game and and we've seen that with his actions you know getting back into the paris accord uh he seems to be wanting to strengthen those bonds between uh, nato and the g7 as well that that let's say it's damaged an awful lot over the last four years yeah, I mean, I think for, for Biden, obviously, you know, throughout his career, foreign affairs, foreign policy, and the U.S.'s role in the world has been a very significant part of what he's done as as a public official. And so I'm not surprised at all to see all of these different facets of what, what they talked about yesterday be linked to this sense of multilateralism and how can America be the right kind of player in the world. And so all of the things that are being discussed here, you know, whether it's, it's pandemic or, or economic growth or environmental protection and climate change, like all of that will require actions that are beyond the, the scope of any individual state, even the U.S. 
And so at the same time as he's trying to strengthen the U.S.'s place in the world, it is very much in that bilateral, in that multilateral space where we can't do climate change alone. We can't do, you know, get this pandemic over with alone. We, we have to work together. And that, that affects definitely the race, relationship with China as well. Let's talk about China. Uh, and we can, I guess, move into the two Michaels as well. Uh, President Biden is, is always one for the soundbite. I mean, he's he's very good at picking that one phrase that stands out. And I guess the one from yesterday is human beings are not bartering chips uh, in reference to the two Michaels. And he has pledged to, uh, to work together until they get the safe return of these two. Uh, pretty strong words uh, from, from a presidential uh, perspective as opposed to, you know, because it's, it's, it's a Canadian problem, although there's, a, I guess, a, a, a kind of a hanging sense here that we kind of got thrown under the bus to do with Huawei and Meng Wanzhou and, and everything else, and not quite sure just how to handle this, because basically the, the Americans turned their, their backs on this whole situation for the most part for the last couple of years. And I mean, absolutely the comment he made about human beings not being bartering chips, I mean, you, you just such a human comment where you know he gets it right and you and like that there's some comfort to be taken in that at the same time i mean you know he says we're going to work together until they get their we get their safe return how are we going to do that and i i still don't know you know where those specifics are coming from and obviously this is a very complicated matter and the president's not going to go out on a zoom call and on a press conference and tell us all the details but at the same time I'm not sure how this is going to come, how this is going to play out. And even this week we saw in, in Parliament, there was a vote on the motion to recognize genocide. Um, you know, how, how is China going to respond to these sorts of things? And what is our plan from a multilateral perspective to deal with China across the board, not just the two Michaels, but also, you know, how, how are we going to, to sort of balance out this power situation that's playing out globally? Well, and that's where the G7 comes in, I guess, and I know the president's mm -hmm. talked about that, and I'm sure the Canadian government, especially the prime minister, must have felt like they were kind of out there all by themselves on some of these issues. Uh, and, and, you know, you've touched on, I think, a very sensitive issue here, about the, the, the prime minister's reticence to really call out China an awful lot of these things. But uh, it's easier to do that if you've got the backing of the United States and Germany and the U.K. and others like that, and that wasn't really forthcoming over the last couple of years. Well, I mean, easier to do it, I, I think, like, it is essential. We cannot, like, the idea of, of talking about a China-Canada relationship, fine. There's, there's no progress here unless it's multilateral. We have to have partners. And I think, you know, the Prime Minister obviously knows that, and so does the President. So I think that's going to be a really interesting part of how this relationship builds over time. That's, and I think that's going to be, you know, an extremely important file on both both Ben's desks for for the short, medium, and long term. I know. Just I saw somebody's tweet too, asking what uh, the Huawei situation, and and I know there's concern here about the five G network in Canada. Really, still hasn't made a final decision about that. I know the Five Eyes, including the United States, are very concerned about that. Uh, but I, I got the sense uh, yesterday, Doctor, that's not the sort of thing you talk about in a Zoom meeting. I mean, that's that's I'm certainly already being discussed at at some level, but certainly not. That was neither the time nor the place, I guess, to put that on the table. Yeah, I mean, like some of the the meetings that the prime minister has taken as a as a global leader you know over the past couple of years have have you know discussed those kinds of the issues about the the 5g and and how we're going to handle those security issues digital security has been a huge piece of those multilateral meetings in the past couple of years and of course um the american representation was trump if he showed up and so that's going to be really interesting to see how President Biden negotiates those conversations now that there's going to be more engagement. 
because, um, you know, obviously that's a big piece of the relationship with China. And I think, you know, for, for everybody, we have to be thinking about going forward, how, how we're going to handle that stuff. Just, I want to circle back, if I could, to, to the uh, Buy America policy. Uh, I can say, I, I kind of wish there was more meat on the bones about that discussion, mm-hmm. too, but I'm, I'm sure that's happening. Uh, but to put it in perspective, though, Doctor, I mean, there's been a Buy American policy in the United States for many, many years now. Uh, they, they've tried it at various levels. They tried it in 08, 09 under the Obama administration. You know, then Vice President Biden would know all about that. But they, none, none of Notwithstanding the fact that we were concerned on this side of the border when they enacted that policy back in '09, uh, for the most part, we seemed to find a way around it. it. You know, it didn't really morph into a buy North American, but there were exceptions. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they made a big deal about it, but they just said, said "Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, let's do that," and without a whole lot of pushback from the Americans. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like if the Buy American policy seems to me to be, you know, sending a not just sending a signal, but it's important. The American government is signaling to Americans that they are protecting American industry and American workers. Oh, I think we've lost her. Are you, th- are you there, Doctor? Oh, no. I know, am I there now? No, I think, yeah, we're just breaking up a little bit. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I'll try to stay perfectly still. There you um, go. <laughs> Uh, like a lot of the other parts of the conversation, like economic growth, like rebuilding after the pandemic, that all factors into the Buy American too. And so it's, I think we, we can take comfort in the fact that there are a number of strands here that, that will weave around one another. Buy American is not going to be dealt with in a vacuum. It's going to be part of those other conversations around economic growth, climate change, protecting workers, growing the middle class, all of that. And, and with the interrelationship between supply chains between the two countries, I mean, we, we it's not really a black and white issue, is it? I mean, there are some things that American manufacturers want from Canada because they just can't get it to the same extent that, the, that you know, if it was only, you know, an American product. Uh, aluminum comes to mind as, as one, but there's many other examples like that. Exactly. And you're, and you're right in your previous point, too, that... Um, this is not something that we're going to see totally fleshed out between, you know, a bilat at the highest level. These are going to be things that are negotiated. And, you know, the, the officials obviously around both are going to be really, you know, a big part of those conversations. But over time, there's going to be, I would expect there's probably going to be ebbs and flows. There's going to be decisions that go our way and there are decisions that are not. And that'll be, you know, part of how everything rolls out in the next few years. Well, it's uh, interesting to see, and it was a two-hour meeting, which I guess is uh, in and of itself mm-hmm. something worth noting, and uh, the fact that uh, some of the other players, uh, the vice president and, of course, the deputy prime minister and other ministers and, uh, and secretaries were involved in that indicates that there's a, already a sense of collaboration that's going on here. Yeah, and I mean, they obviously made the comments around, you know, wow, we really would have liked this to be a real visit where there could have been more interaction. And and that probably would have been the case, like that, you know, when hopefully when we get to the point where we've got mass vaccines and we can have a visit like that, I think we'll see the, the relationship kind of confirmed again when there's a little bit more opportunity for networking and then the, you know, receptions and talking on the margins of things. This is just the beginning, I think. This is just kind of step one. Uh, Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Great to get your perspective on this. Thank you, too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University, uh, with her read on the uh, the Biden-Trudeau uh, summit, virtual summit, I guess it was actually from yesterday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In ordinary times, uh, we'd be just a couple of weeks away from uh, spring break, March break, whatever it is, which is one of the busier traveling times of the year, obviously. A lot of people like to get rid of winter and uh, pop down south or wherever, Arizona. They've got things to do, places to go, people to see. But 
These are not normal times, as we all know from the last year with the pandemic. And uh, different governments are trying to handle this in different ways. Here in Ontario, March break has become April break. They've bumped it back a few weeks, and other jurisdictions are doing that too, which, of course, raises the question, uh, should we even cancel March break altogether or move it back? Well, our good friends at uh, Leger wanted to find out how Canadians and Americans are feeling about this, and uh, the numbers are interesting. Uh, Dave Schultz is the Executive Vice President for Leger, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Dave, thanks for the time. Glad you're with us again today. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, this is, it sounds like uh, this is a big deal, really. It's, it used to be a big deal in, in ordinary times for the airline industry. I mean, you'd see all these people running over to Pearson and other airports, and uh, the beaches were jammed, of course. Even last year, uh, the first uh, you know vestiges of, of the pandemic, uh, people seemed to not pay much attention to it. I guess the first thing is, you, Legia, of course, is such a large company. You, you're looking at both sides of the border now. Was there a difference in attitude between Canadians and Americans when it came to this subject? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Whenever we've been talking COVID, there's always been a slight difference in attitudes between Canadians and Americans, with Canadians taking a uh, a much more cautious approach. Um, but in this case, it actually is fairly consistent results. So uh, we had 31% of Canadians and 31% of Americans who say that we should proceed with spring break exactly the way it is. Um, slightly more Canadians are, are willing to see it postponed uh, to a later date. But um, again, same numbers, around 30% of both countries want it to be cancelled. So it's fairly consistent. And it's that, that tr- three key responses coming out. Um, 29% of Canadians want it to be cancelled, 27% said it should be postponed, and 31% said we should proceed as usual. So there's no real, <laughs> there's no real consensus coming out. No. Not at all. And, and I guess that's obviously because of some of the trepidation that's gone on here. Uh, and, and you've broken it down by uh, province here, too, which is rather interesting. Uh, different attitudes around here. The Atlantic provinces uh, say, well, the, the overwhelming majority of people in the Atlantic provinces say it should be canceled. It should be canceled. Uh, yeah. And if you go across the country, Ontario is the uh, is the least likely to say that we should proceed at the same time. Like, we're, we're more for canceling it or postponing it uh, than any other province. But, but I find some interesting results coming out of this. So Alberta... Uh, Manitoba uh, and Quebec would like it to see proceed the way it always does. About forty percent in each mm-hmm. each area, uh, and people with kids and those eighteen to thirty four, those are the key demographics that are saying let's proceed with it the the way we always have. What, I'm trying to get the rationalization here. We tried to get some answers from the minister on this, too, when they made the announcement about this. And, uh, you know, because we've been talking about mental health issues, and I think everybody's stressed out because of the, the length of this pandemic. And now the, the talk about a, a possible third wave and variants as of the viruses, et cetera. Uh, was there an appetite to just say, look, I just got to get away from this for a while? Is it uh, as if, I guess, going to a different location is going to make you get away from it? I'm, I don't well, know what the rationale yeah, is. Cause we, we went a little bit further and we asked, uh, would, are you planning on? on taking any sort of travel during this coming spring break. Because that's really what it comes down to. We can have spring break, and if the kids are at home, um, it hasn't changed very much. In Ontario, they've only recently gone back to school anyways. Um, And it gives everyone a chance to have a break. But if you're planning on traveling, I think that's where the concern comes in. And across Canada, 8% of Canadians say that they do plan to travel, um, at least within their own region or province. There's to be expanded, like are you going to go outside Canada, across the country, or within your own province? The bulk of it is within your own province. 
Um, but again, it's the 18 to 34 year old group who is planning on traveling and those with kids. Which is traditional. I mean, you know, for years and years now, spring break has been a chance to go down to a sunspot. And, and that actually, in hindsight, was one of the things that caused, I guess, one of the big spikes last spring, uh, was a lot of people just ignored the, the warnings and the advice and went and did what they wanted to do on the beaches. And of course, the, the governor of Florida welcomed everybody. But, and you saw what happened as a result of that. Uh, are, we, are we more nervous about this right now than we were a year ago? You know, Canadians are still as nervous about COVID than they were at the beginning. Um, nothing has changed, but I think our capacity for hanging in there is starting to starting to shift a bit. And as you said, mental health is a big issue. Um, a lot of people just need a break. Uh, and, and it isn't so much the beaches that are beckoning, because if you look in Alberta, they're also planning on doing a lot of travel, but within their own province. So the mountains are also beckoning for skiing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have family out there, and, uh, and Banff is doing very well. Thank you very much. Uh, it's only a two-hour drive from Calgary. Uh, I, I think they just want to get outdoors and do some stuff right now, and, and it's been a very, very problematic. Well, here in Ontario, I mean, they just opened the ski holes, what, a week or so ago? Uh, so there's a lot of people now that just say, hey, like, I got a lot of time to make up here. I'm going. That's all there is to it. And, and we're looking for any release. We're looking for anything. Um, you know, this is anecdotal, but I don't know if you drove by any of the malls over those last weekends since we started to reopen in Burlington and Hamilton and the parking lots were packed. Oh yeah. yeah. People are just looking for, so, so we're looking for that and spring break has for a lot of people has traditionally been that getaway, that, uh, that answer to the long winter for us. And so we're still seeing about one in 10, 8%, one in 10 Canadians feel that they would really still want to do something and canceling spring break could affect those plans for that for that segment of the population and transferring it because yeah you're right there's two things the canceling i don't think is going to happen i don't I, a matter of fact i'm not aware dave and has any jurisdiction actually canceled it no i think postponing is really what they're looking yeah. at until uh, till the weather is nicer, and we heard that yesterday from Dr. Tam, of course, the, that, you know, as we get, well, we saw this last year, was as we get through the nicer weather, we, we're gonna, the numbers tend to go down there anyway. But the, the, the counterbalance to that, though, of course, is, is when people start to travel, there's a propensity for the numbers and the, the new cases to go up again, too. So I think that probably accounts for an awful lot of the trepidation that Canadians are showing on this anyway. Yeah, and when it comes to traveling, you talked about Americans. Uh, we're at 8% are planning on traveling, even with covid it's 18% in the U.S. So, again, we see that disparity where Americans are more likely to um, I- ignore some of the rules and, and, and go and, and travel. But they've, they've done that to a certain extent anyway, haven't they? I mean, California's got some horrific numbers, but, you know, there are still gatherings. I mean, you know, they're, they're, we saw, well, even at the Super Bowl, there were people in the stands, uh, not full capacity necessarily. And, uh, you know, even some of the talk shows, the late-night talk shows, they have audience members and, and social distancing's in play here. But they, they seem to be a lot more relaxed about some of those restrictions than we have on this side of the border. Well, quite definitely. And, again, that's showing up on the results there. Yeah, and it's a it's a chicken and the egg sort of thing. Is it because people want it to be relaxed, or is it because it's already relaxed that we feel okay to, to answer questions this way? And, and, and as a result, of course, we want to talk because it was almost a rite of passage. I mean, March break used to be okay. Winter's finally over, uh, and which is maybe why I guess a lot of folks wanted to go to some of the sunspots, kind of get a head start on on the nicer weather and the summer weather. Maybe get a couple of rounds of golf in and things of that nature. Uh, when you're cooped up like this, and I know you've talked about this in past surveys you guys have done, uh, it really has a, an impact. And you're right. When finally somebody opens the door and says, "Okay, you can go now," uh, you're you're gone. You're doing something, and you're. 
your point's well taken. I mean, it's going to be interesting to track exactly what people do and where they're going uh, because of situations like this. And we have the technology for this. I mean, a lot of people said, I think you talked about this late last year, said they weren't going to travel over the Christmas holidays. Uh, but then, of course, the cell phone companies did some tracking and said, yeah, yeah. you did. Uh, a yeah. lot of you did. You didn't admit it, but you did. And I'm wondering if we're going to see the same anomaly this time. Well, the only thing that I find uh, kind of interesting about these results is that we only have 1% who said that they're going to travel outside of Canada. And that number has, started, has shifted considerably. Even when we were told that we shouldn't be over Christmas, we did see more people say that they had plans to travel outside of Canada. So I, uh, maybe the, it's, it's the uh, hotel stay when you return. Uh, maybe it's uh, let's, let's follow the rules sort of by staying in province. Uh, but uh, we are seeing that that's the good news we're seeing more people want to stay in Canada well and that's why this is so timely as, as to when you took this survey because this was after I guess uh, the government made their announcement about quarantine after and mandatory quarantines and you had to pay for it and things of this nature and uh, I'm, I'm sure that made a lot of people think twice about you know plans to go wherever they wanted to go outside of Canada well quite definitely yes but on the other hand, Dave, I mean, the, you know, we, see, we saw the stats, I guess it was Monday, uh, but the number of people that are arriving back in Canada. So, I mean, they're traveling nonetheless, and those are not all business meetings. I mean, some people just feel, you know, let's let's give this a shot. What the heck? I, I, they obviously think it's worth the risk. Yeah, well, you, we still saw a significant number of snowbirds uh, yeah. leave for the at least part of, part of the winter. Um, and we're seeing numbers shift in the U.S. as well. Uh, the numbers are starting to come down. So we may see more people think it's okay to travel. And as we see our numbers start to come down, we may see more people start to think it's okay to travel as, as spring break starts to get closer even. So what are the implications uh, to the economy when this happens? I mean, if, if in fact we are true to our word here and most of us just decide, okay, we're just going to stick around here right now, uh, you know, we've talked about the hit that the, the commercial businesses, especially the tourism area, has, has taken over uh, the last 12 or 13 months, I guess, because of COVID. Uh, and they're looking forward to this. I mean, they want some of that traffic in some of these resort towns, uh, you know, some of the ski resorts here in Ontario, places right across the country right now. Uh, this, this has got to be a bit of a kick in the shin for those people quite definitely and we did some work a little while ago for a, a hotel group uh throughout the the bc mountains a ski hotel group on um, canadians attitudes towards quick response because anything that these uh resorts can do to have people check in and show that they're safe and quick response tests i mean and have and show that they're they're safe and don't have covid will just increase the, the demand, hopefully, or the, the likelihood of someone to travel, but we're still not seeing it. I'm wondering what the vaccine program is a factor in this, too. I mean, are we maybe looking in, at, at that light at the end of the tunnel and saying, boy, you know what, maybe I'll just hold on here because uh, they say that we're going to have vaccines by the summertime or late summertime, uh, and that's going to open up a lot of things. Maybe we can just, you know, kind of put up with this again for another couple of weeks. That might be the attitude, but... Uh, you know, when that changes almost weekly. Well, you're not getting the vaccines, et cetera, as fast as we thought we were going to get right now. Uh, so I, I can understand the angst and the frustration right now. Quite, quite definitely. We are, and, and again, people are under the impression that once we start to get vaccines going, things will start to open up more. And as we see, for example, Ontario start to open up, there is that, uh, we're starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel. And it, it, it's, it's going to do two things. People are going to willing to wait because they're holding off for that vaccine, or people are just going to start doing things. And 
Um, you know, public health is telling us that if we just start doing things, getting out and uh, re-socializing ourselves, uh, we're going to see a spike, especially with the new variant. So it's, uh, I would not want to be in public health right now because it's a very difficult time to be communicating to people to hold on just a little bit longer. And we've seen that already, haven't we, this week, uh, and uh, maybe even last week, too, when we started hearing from Dr. Tam and some others. The numbers have gone down dramatically, uh, and that's great news. You know, the number of new cases has, has, has really, really decreased significantly. Uh, and I think a lot of people might have a false sense of security, and you've got all these public health officials that are saying, whoa, d- d- don't, don't, don't draw that conclusion. They're, they're still concerned about a major spike, and they keep pointing to that March break holiday when they say people are probably going to travel, notwithstanding what they might say, uh, and and they're concerned about what the ramifications are going to be. So we're not out of the woods yet, are we? No, and we want to start to open because we want to have businesses get a relief, at least a little bit of a relief. We want to start people uh, from a mental health standpoint, being able to leave their homes and and going out and doing a little bit more in, in a socially safe, distanced role. But we also want to make sure that that spread doesn't continue. Well, there's a bunch of factors here. I'm just getting an email here from one from Gary, who's listening to our conversation. So travel within the province. Have you seen the price of gas this week? I, and I, his points will take it. Uh, I mean, that's changed considerably over the last four to five weeks, too, because the, the international price of, of fuel has gone up. So uh, a lot of folks might be thinking twice about that sort of thing. And, and staycations, I think, are still going to be the, 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 the norm, I think, for an awful lot of people. Well, again, for 92% of the people, according to our poll, vacation is, is what it's all about but uh as you said as it starts to get closer that that need to just go might take over and we might still see people running out interesting survey as always and, and great to get the data it's it's a great way to get a snapshot as to just where people's heads are uh over this uh last couple of weeks especially because of all the information that's coming at us from all sides uh always a pleasure to have you on the program uh, thanks so much for the time today dave oh you're welcome thank you very much Take care. Dave Schultz, of course, Executive Vice President uh, with the Leger folks. And uh, there's a story to be told there. And, and I'm, I always take some of these things with a grain of salt. And we've got some fabulous people that do surveys here, some great pollsters. And uh, if you've, whether or not you've ever been called, but I mean, it's, for the sake of three or four minutes, they try to get an idea on this. But the numbers tell a different story sometimes, and, and especially when it comes to the travel. And that was the one I looked at rather skeptically, uh, which is not to doubt the research that the Leger or anybody else has done in situations like that. But I think sometimes when people get these surveys, they, they answer it the way they think they're sure to answer it as opposed to what they actually want to do. And I, I don't doubt that there are an awful lot of people that are going to say, yeah, I'm just going to stay home. We're not going to travel. We're not going down to, to Carolinas or to play golf or we're not going to go down to Florida. But you know as well as I do that when that break comes, and it's going to be different times, of course, because some of them are still going to do it in March, in mid-March. Uh, the beaches are going to be full in California and in Florida. Uh, the tourism is going to be just as rampant as it was, I'm sure, in past years. Uh, and, and we're going to see this in the resorts as well. Now, to their credit, an awful lot of those people that are expecting crowds there have, have made those allowances, uh, not so much on beaches, although there are rules that apparently don't get followed very often. But here in Canada, in the Great White North, uh, we do know, having talked to a number of the people that are running ski resorts here in the province of Ontario, which is probably where an awful lot of people are going to try to go for a couple of days anyway, if the weather holds out, uh, they they have put the protocols in place, the social distancing and, and mask wearing and things of that nature, to ensure that uh, that there isn't going to be any problem in those areas when there's going to be a crowd of, of people there. And that's good news. Uh, I guess the, the codicil here for a lot of people, especially here in Ontario, is... Uh, 
if that's the kind of stuff you wanted to do, winter sports, cross-country skiing, downhill skiing, whatever the case might be, uh, moving this now to uh, April, uh, well, you don't know what the weather's going to be like, and that could be a factor too. And I know the resorts uh, that had to stay closed over the Christmas break and just opened, many of them opened just about a week or so ago, are hoping against hope that the weather's going to stay cold and they're going to get lots of snow and people are going to partake in that. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a frustrating situation for those people thinking that, okay, we were hoping that maybe, because traditionally, uh, if the weather holds, and it seems to be okay for now, that uh, March break would still be one of those things where winter sports could be used extensively. Uh, you move in another month to April, and you don't know what kind of weather we're going to get. Uh, and therein lies the problem. So there are going to be economic consequences to this, too. And that might actually change people's minds uh, in the fullness of time when they get closer to that date and say, yeah, let's, let's go. But uh, we'll see what happens anyway. Interesting stuff from Leger, as per usual. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we begin the analysis of uh, what went right, what went wrong with uh, our dealing with the pandemic, it's been over a year now, one of the areas we need to talk about is preparedness. And uh, we weren't very prepared, but we could have been. Uh, had we followed through on a number of initiatives that have been started years ago. And it, it all boils down to an agency called the Global Public Health Intelligence Network. Uh, and, uh, well, there's a sad story about that we're going to get to in a couple of seconds, that, and it could have made a difference. That's one of the frustrating parts about this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Julianne Piper. Uh, Julianne is a research fellow and project coordinator with the NFRF-funded International Research Project on Compliance and COVID-19 at Simon Fraser University. Uh, Julianne, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us here today. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Well, this is a big deal for me because I've, I've always talked about, you know, political uh, decisions that are being made, even not by necessarily politicians, but uh, when it comes to, you know, bureaucracies and things of this nature, there has to be long-time commitments and, and long-term commitments and understanding the importance of agencies that are set up to try to protect us. And uh, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network was certainly one of those. Uh, but it fell victim to a, a lot of, I guess, what other agencies fall victim to in, in government, and that's, uh, well, we don't really need that. Can we cut back on that? And that seemed to be the attitude there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's um, some a lot of interest in this topic that's, that's being raised and um, some important questions that we need to ask around around sort of the trajectory of GFIN or the Global Public Health Intelligence Network in recent years. Um, it's still certainly a part of, of the Public Health Agency of Canada and still operational, but it seems to have been perhaps not utilized to its greatest potential, um, particularly in the years leading up to, to where we are now. So happy to be here to speak a bit more about that. Well, was there an attitude at that time, Julianne, and again, I'm not going to point the finger at any one government but, or any one bureaucrat uh, in, in public health and in the agencies uh, that suggested, hey, we don't have a pandemic. I don't see one on the horizon. We really don't need to fund this agency to the extent that we've been funding it. Uh, maybe there's some, I hate to use this word because governments always do it, some efficiencies that we can find here. In other words, they want to save money. Yeah, it's a good question. I think we don't have all the answers to that question yet. And, and in fact, you know, um, uh, Health Minister Patty Hadju has announced that there there will be um, a federal review of of sort of what Chiefin's role in in Canada's response to COVID nineteen was and and what it, its role could be moving forward. Um, yeah, I think in reality, just like just like everything that has happened in this pandemic, the answer is probably a bit more complex than you know just a, a decision to cut funding. Um, Chiefin's been around since you know. 
the late 1990s and, and evolved in different stages at different times. So um, hopefully, hopefully we'll have more answers to some of those questions as, as the federal review is undertaken. And also just as we take a look at, at um, how Canada responded to COVID-19 and, and how we can do better in future. Did we have a, a, a sense of complacency because of this? You mentioned uh, when this, when 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 GFIN was was structured, it was well, like you say, well, almost over twenty years ago now. Uh, I can remember having a discussion when I was on city council back in those days with the medical officer of health, and we she was talking about concerns about the future, and she she went into a lengthy presentation about pandemics, and I I thought. We haven't had a pandemic. I mean, since the turn of the nineteenth or twentieth century, and 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 it didn't happen. I mean, we did have SARS and H one N one and Ebola, uh, but it didn't have the impact of a global pandemic that we thought it was going to. So maybe maybe we just thought, no, we got this. We really don't need to prepare the way we do it. We don't need to put the resources into it that we need to. Yeah. Again, uh, good questions and probably ones that will be asked. For many months, if not years, to come, um, GFIN did play, you know, significant roles in in previous uh, outbreaks and pandemics in SARS in 2003 and H1N1 in 2009 in um, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome um, MERS in in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know it's one of several tools in the government's arsenal. Um, and it's, it's unique, you know, it's a unique um, tool. So co- in the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, Dr. Teresa Tam has, has in fact confirmed that um, early notifications in December 2019 were from, sourced from GFIN. Um, but it is a, it's a robust public health intelligence tool um, that relies on, you know, capacity to scan basically media reports of different health based risks or threats from around the world in in nine different languages you know so they're processing um you know thousands of different sources on a daily basis and and trying to uh decipher which of those are represent a risk um and there's a lot of processes and bureaucratic decisions around that public health intelligence capacity that feed into, you know, how effective it is and, and how much it's leveraged in response to any given health crisis. The, uh, the Globe and Mail was a little more accusatory, I guess, in, in their assessment. Uh, they actually did a study on this. I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, it detailed how GFIN uh, had much of its operations silenced uh, starting in 2018 as managers within the Public Health Agency of Canada looked to reallocate resources to other areas that did not involve pan- pandemic preparedness because uh, they said no threat on the horizon. So, you know, do we really need to do this? And, that, and now that's their investigation. And I, I don't know who they talk to. They don't name sources in situations like that. Uh, and as you say, mm-hmm. the, the minister is actually going to, there is an investigation that's ongoing in this. And uh, we're not necessarily looking to point fingers at people right now, but there seemed to be uh, a, a, almost a lackadaisical attitude that do we really need to do this? Are pandemics really something, you know, that we need to worry about in the 21st century? I think we know the answer to that now, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Bill, if we were having this conversation in the middle of 2019 instead of now, our mm-hmm. our inter- level of interest and sort of public engagement in something like GFIN would be very different, right? The conversation yep. would be very different. Um, it is a it is a common um, common question around, you know, how prepared do we need to be? I think public health officials and global health experts have certainly been warning 
of this eventuality for a long time, but it also took many countries by surprise. And I think the whole world has been tested in, in sort of its capacity and decisions around public health preparedness. Um, so really, really valuable and important questions moving forward around how Canada wants to invest in this capacity. And also, you know, there's it, GFIN is not the only public health intelligence tool that we have at our disposal. You know, globally, this um, responsibility for coordinating and collecting intelligence sits with the World Health Organization. So, you know, there are um, questions, I think, that the whole world will be considering around whether a state-based, you know, global intelligence system makes sense or whether we need to also invest sort of collectively, globally, in the capacity to coordinate effective responses to these types of public health emergencies. Well, to that point, uh, one of the things I think that really hurt us, and I, I don't just mean Canada, I'm talking about globally, uh, was there were the attacks on agencies like the World Health Organization and others uh, by political leaders, specifically in the White House, of course, but there were others that were doing that, uh, that really undermined the credibility of agencies like that in trying to get information out there. And, uh, and, and it, it made getting the message out there that much more difficult and the believability by an awful lot of people uh, that much more difficult. It must be heartening to understand that the new administration down there uh, wants to, to, to get back to the World Health Organization and, and, and build those bonds again and, and and that's, that's important to have that sort of communication on a global basis. I think so, yeah. You know, we know that we live in a world with incredibly permeable borders and that, you know, the volume of global traffic has increased significantly. It's probably only going to increase um, after we get out of this COVID-19 situation. Um, the potential for international spread of diseases is real. And, you know, um, we do need to, I think, invest in institutions like the World Health Organization and in their capacity to coordinate and lead at a global level. What is the uh, the state of international communication when it comes to something like this? Because I'm sure you've seen some of the critiques about uh, what's happened over the last 12 years, and, and uh, the jury's still out on that. We haven't got any definitive reports on that. But there seemed to be an indication that maybe we underestimated COVID-19 uh, because uh, we were able to control, and that's probably not the strongest word I could use, for things like SARS and Ebola. It didn't have the global uh, impact that, uh, that we were afraid of, and uh, we thought, well, we can probably do this one too. Uh, yet, we obviously were not prepared for the impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, COVID-19 is, is different epidemiologically than some of the other diseases that we've seen. I think, you know, one of the big lessons learned coming out of COVID-19 is that it, it has been countries with very robust, you know, public health systems and, and healthcare capacity that have been hit the hardest. So it is a lesson for, for all of us for the future that, you know, we need to invest in emergency preparedness and um, our capacity to collect intelligence and, and be able to act quickly um, and do better in the future. Which is really, I, I guess, one of the main examples of, of what this agency was doing, what GFIN was doing. Uh, I don't want our listeners to get the wrong impression if you're just becoming familiar with the agency right now. There's, it wasn't going to stop the COVID-19, but it might have sent up some flags to say, hey, we need to do something about this. In other words, you, when you see the dark clouds on the horizon, uh, it's time to batten down the hatches. And maybe we didn't do that to the extent we should have. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
epidemic intelligence gathering is, is a critical and early step in disease detection, prevention, and response. So ideally, it allows public health officials to identify health events of concern very quickly and accurately um, to sort of provide early warning of outbreaks and other, other health risks. Um, we do know that the earlier a risk is identified and the quicker that public health measures are implemented, the more successful we can be at, you know, preventing the types of uh, social, economic, and health impacts that, that we've seen around the world with COVID. Well, and probably more important for this one than many others, because uh, as we found out, we were learning as we were going along here. And I know that's that's one of the reasons that the critics will point to healthcare officials and say, well, we got mixed messages. You know, no, we don't need masks. Yes, we do. No, we should. Uh, but that's but that's because this was a new coronavirus, and, and uh, the experts were trying to pick up that information as we were going along. Uh, in hindsight, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, I suppose, Julianne, uh, <laughs> it would have been better had we had more information about that. And more importantly, if if our healthcare experts, the Dr. Tams and others uh, that are charged with this responsibility, uh, had more information and more data that they could have disseminated and, and made maybe different judgments about how we could have approached this. Yeah, I mean, I guess the important thing to remember is that it is a novel coronavirus and, and you know, scientific evidence and our knowledge about how the virus works evolved over time. And it's, it's unlikely that something like GFIN would have dramatically changed that. I mean, GFIN um, scans media reports for events, so it sort of is a more of a situational awareness tool than necessarily providing, you know, the scientific uh, data on the virus that would have informed public health decisions around, you know, whether masks were effective or not, things like that. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard because uh, the scientific evidence evolves and and it's not always palatable to the public that that advisory change advisories change but you know it's the reality of the world we live in unfortunately when we see a, a virus or a health risk that that we haven't seen before you know it was really unknown and i think um governments around the world have done a phenomenal job of, of trying to you know get on top of this as it's unfolded um you know, there's always things that we can do better, and, and that's part of why we're having this conversation and part of why we're, we're interested in GFIN and, and how it can be used or, or replaced or, you know, um, invested in otherwise in, in developing Canada's public health intelligence capacities. What have we learned? And I understand the analysis is still going on, and it's not going to get done anytime soon. I understand that. But from the data we've assumed and been able to study so far and where we are now in battling, well, with the second wave and hopefully not a third wave of any great extent, but have we learned that we can do things better? Have we learned from the way that things got that there is a better way that we could do this to prepare? Because, you know, we don't know if there's going to be a next time or when that's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think we are, we're continuously learning these things, you know. Um, we already knew that the, the most effective way to respond to a health risk or health threat is to act as early as possible with as much information as possible. Um, you know, I think we, one of the big lessons learned or relearned in this crisis is just how interconnected the world is and how um, important it is that that this information is um, coordinated at the global level. Um, I think I think we're going to need to take a, a real look at at how we invest um, in multilateral health initiatives and and reinforce you know the WHO's role as 
as the lead in in coordinating global responses to international disease outbreaks. Well, and let's face it, government has a role to play here too. And I know that's that's not your wheelhouse, uh, but but you know, just as an observer and as a taxpayer, uh, you know, mm-hmm. when agencies start going over budgets, I think we have to re- restate, I think, time and time again, uh, the importance of agencies like this and and the and the role that they can play in situations like that. And 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 you know, for somebody who you know would say, well, come on, do we really need to be funding that particular agency, GFIN, to the extent that we were? We haven't had a pandemic for a long time. Uh, the reverse of that, or the inverse of that, is rather maybe that's because of agencies like that. That's why we haven't had a pandemic for a long time. There is a role for these agencies to play, and and uh, I think governments have to understand that that this is not a short-term solution. This is a long-term solution. Hmm. Yeah, I'd say that you know Canada has a, a long trajectory of being a leader in in global public health, um, and that you know the creation of GFIN was actually groundbreaking at the time in the late 1990s and, and have had a sig- made significant contributions to, to, you know, advancing and protecting global health security. So it's just about sort of taking a step back and, and looking at, you know, what we need to do going forward. And, and um, you're right, like, uh, like assessing the value of those investments in, in intelligence and preparedness and response capacities. Um, like I said, you know, um, Canada's made made significant contributions to this, and and whether it means um, like reinvesting and and revitalizing GFIN and its role, or you know, contributing to strengthening a, a different mechanism at the global level, I think has yet to be seen. I'm really interested in in seeing what comes out of this this federal review, and and there's a similar you know, independent panel on pandemic preparedness and response that the World Health Organization has initiated. Initiated, So, um, you know, we're not the only ones, though, that are, are oh, interested no. in, in what these lessons learned will be and, and how the, the world will grapple with these very complex challenges moving forward. Oh, exactly. And you've heard some of the debate, too, about, you know, why, why, why where's the vaccine industry? Why aren't we doing that sort of thing? Uh, we used to have that. I mean, Cannot Laboratories, of course, was, was a world-famous agency that was sold off by a past government, too, when they decided to privatize these sorts of things. So we, we need to be wary as taxpayers, I guess, uh, to, of, of, of short-sighted political decisions. They're, they're going to come back and bite us, and, and like some of these have, too. So I, I hope we've learned our lesson. And, and combine that with the great work that, that, that these agencies are doing. And uh, maybe we will be better prepared if, if and when these things come up again. Uh, Juliana, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for the great work that you're doing out at Simon Fraser University. And uh, stay well. Hopefully we can talk again soon. Thanks so much, Bill. My pleasure. Take care. Julianne Piper, of course, a Research Fellow and Project Coordinator uh, with the International Research Project there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.